why the gospel needed to stay alive there. That's where the, the temple of Diana was, the Greek god goddess. And uh, so there were a lot of problems surrounding that. So you can see how street, strategically placed uh, Ephesus was. Uh, also in the book of Revelation, uh, how many of the epistle churches, uh, how many of the epistle churches are mentioned in the book of Revelation? Little question. No. Uh, the ones, one of the churches that he wrote to is also in the book of Revelation of the seven churches. Ephesus is mentioned here. And then it's, it's also to one of the seven churches. It's the first of the seven churches that he speaks to. So that shows you the importance of Ephesus. Matter of fact, here I go again. Why don't we just turn to Revelation uh, real quick? Because I asked the question a couple weeks ago when he was encouraging them in the faith and telling them how to maintain the faith. Then I wrote in my Bible here, well, let's see later how they did. Well, we're going to read the Revelation here to the church of Ephesus and it will show you how they did. Um, uh, chapter 2 of Revelation, Revelation verse 1 says, Write this to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, who is that? That's Jesus. Okay. He's speaking to the church of Ephesus. Now, look at this in the light of what he told them to do in Paul's epistles to the Ephesians. And you'll see how much progress they made. He said, I know all the things you do. You know, these seven letters to the seven churches that were in Asia Minor there are so very important. Uh, it's the same pattern for every church. He tells them, I know what you do. I know your hard work. I know this. I know that. I know your endurance and how proud I am of you. But he always comes up with one thing that he's not proud of. And so uh, he says, I know all the things that you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. And I have discovered they are liars. You have discovered. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this one thing against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Whoops. So this is coming from the Lord Himself. So obviously the church that was established in Ephesus they had fallen out of love with the Lord the way they should and out of love with each other. Isn't that something that we often occurs in the churches? Yes. That we can, we can yes. apply. Our first love is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then as we're going to see in chapter 4 of Ephesus, our second love is, is to carry out His commission in, in the world. He loves us. He, gave him, he says, uh, you don't love each other. Look how far you've fallen. How many of you remember when you first got saved? Yeah. Wow, you were you're yeah. a wild man and a wild woman, weren't you? <laughs> How many of you remember when you got baptized in the Holy Ghost and you were just like worthless for three or four days? I mean, it's just was boom, you got hit between the eyes with a two by four. But I remember those days, and it's hard to get them back sometimes, isn't it? I mean, uh, things happen in churches, things happen in our lives. Yeah. But we can't let the enemy steal that. In Psalm 51, one thing I've been meditating on, Psalm 51, David says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is so important. 
that we carry the joy of our salvation. But the devil tries to put the joy through the ringer. How many of you remember old ringer washers? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Y'all grew up the same time I did, didn't you? I had this thing the other day when I was thinking about joy, and the devil tries to get our joy and run it through the ringer. And if he doesn't get it the first time through, I remember sometimes you had to put the, the towels and the clothes or the rags back the second time. If he don't get you the first time, he'll try the second time. He'll try the third time. He'll try to put your salvation. He'll get you to doubt your salvation. And he'll try to put your joy and your peace and your love through the ringer, won't he? But he said, look how far. And he says, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. What is the work of the Lord? To believe in the one that he sent. And uh, here's what happens if we don't repent. I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Oops, that doesn't sound good. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. We don't need to talk about the Nicolaitans tonight. It was a perversion of the gospel. Back when the gospel was first taken hold in Asia Minor in the, in the uh, epistle cities, uh, the Nicolaitans were, uh, they taught that you could be a Christian but also live however you wanted to. It's a whole doctrine. There was a lot of doctrines that came up that were anti-Christ doctrines. Oh, yeah. Because Pergamum, if you study Pergamum, is called the seed of Satan. Yeah. And I've been studying about Pergamum. There, uh, uh, people would come to Pergamum and up on top of a big hill. All of you have seen pictures of Athens and stuff, the Acropolis is sitting up there. Well, in Pergamum, they called that the seat of Satan yep. because people would come there and this big, massive, blah, was sitting up there. That was the devil's seat. And so the church of Pergamum really needed to be uh, encouraged. But one thing about this letter to the church at Ephesus Paul intended for this to be sent to all the churches, not just Ephesus. Amen. He wanted it to be sent out to the struggling churches. So why did Paul start with Ephesus? Because they were strong in the area there, and they were in a strategic place. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians. If you've got any questions, just ask. So far, so good? Maybe. Um, so, first three chapters, what he's done. The last three chapters are going to be how we respond to what he's done and what we can do. Okay? All right. Chapter 1. This is Paul saying, Therefore, I, I'm, not, I'm in the New Living. He's called himself a prisoner for serving the Lord. He's a prisoner for serving the Lord. He said, And beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now was this to specific people or was this to the church in general? It was the church in general. He said to live a life that is worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. And we need to believe and put in our spirit that God chose us to good works before the beginning of time. Alright? So I'm doing what God called me to do. And so each one of us have to do what God calls us to do because we need to live the life worthy of the responsibility that He's given us. Amen. Verse 2 says, Always be humble and gentle. Now, 
this is not in the form of correction. Paul's not speaking here in the form of correction, but what he's speaking of is in the form of edification because he realized himself that we are not always humble as Christians. Can I get an amen there? And we are not always gentle as Christians. Can I get an amen there? Now Paul doesn't go on a rant against that. He realizes that that's who people are. And we're human beings and we're going to be like human beings sometimes. But we're not, we're not supposed to forget our calling. But as we exercise our calling, he says to the church, always be humble and gentle and be patient with each other. Well, we failed all three of them, so no. no. <laughs> but now, see, that's okay to read it out of this chapter because Paul's not in correction mode here. He's in lifting up mode. He's in edifying mode. We all know these things to be true. And we've all been guilty of not being humble at times, not being gentle at times, and certainly not being patient at times. But Paul exhorts the church at Ephesus, hey, it's okay, it's okay. I'm, he's reminding them. Okay, uh, where was I? Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. You have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. And I have discovered they are liars. You have discovered. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this one thing against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Whoops. So this is coming from the Lord himself. So obviously the church that was established in Ephesus, they had fallen out of love with the Lord the way they should and out of love with each other. Isn't that something that we often occurs in the churches? Yes. That we can, we can yes. apply. Our first love is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then as we're going to see in chapter 4 of Ephesus, our second love is, is to carry out His commission in, in the world. He loves us. And gave him, he says, uh, you don't love each other. Look how far you've fallen. How many of you remember when you first got saved? Yeah. Wow, you were you're yeah. a wild man and a wild woman, weren't you? Right. How many of you remember when you got baptized in the Holy Ghost and you were just like worthless for three or four days? I mean, it's just with boom, you got hit between the eyes with a two by four. But I remember those days, and it's hard to get them back sometimes, isn't it? I mean, uh, things happen in churches, things happen in our lives. But we can't let the enemy steal that. In Psalm 51, one thing I've been meditating on, Psalm 51, David says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. That is so important that we carry the joy of our salvation. But the devil tries to put the joy through the ringer. How many of you remember old ringer washers? Oh, yeah. You all grew up the same time I did, didn't you? I had this thing the other day when I was thinking about joy, and the devil tries to get our joy and run it through the ringer. Yes, sir. And if he doesn't get it the first time through, I remember sometimes you had to put the, the towels and the clothes or the rags back the second time. If he don't get you the first time, he'll try the second time. He'll try the third time. He'll try to put your salvation. He'll get you to doubt your salvation, and he'll try to put your joy and your peace and your love through the ringer, won't he? But... He said, look how far. And he says, turn back to me and do the works you did at first. What is the work of the Lord? To believe in the one that he sent. Yes. 
And uh, here's what happens if we don't repent. I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Oops, that doesn't sound good. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. We don't need to talk about the Nicolaitans tonight. It was a perversion of the gospel. Back when the gospel was first taken hold in Asia Minor in the, in the uh, epistle cities, uh, the Nicolaitans were, uh, they taught that you could be a Christian but also live however you wanted to. It's a whole doctrine. There was a lot of doctrines that came up that were anti-Christ doctrines. Because Pergamum, if you study Pergamum, is called the seed of Satan. And I've been studying about Pergamum. There, uh, people would come to Pergamum and up on top of a big hill. All of you have seen pictures of Athens and stuff, the Acropolis is sitting up there. Well, in Pergamum, they called that the seat of Satan. Because people would come there and this big, massive, blah, was sitting up there. That was the devil's seat. And so the church of Pergamum really needed to be uh, encouraged. But one thing about this letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul intended for this to be sent to all the churches, not just Ephesus. Amen. He wanted it to be sent out to the struggling churches. So why did Paul start with Ephesus? Because they were strong in the area there, and they were in a strategic place. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians. If you've got any questions, just ask. So far, so good? So, first three chapters, what he's done. The last three chapters are going to be how we respond to what he's done and what we can do. Okay? All right. Chapter 1. This is Paul saying, Therefore, I, I'm, not, I'm in the New Living. He's called himself a prisoner for serving the Lord. He's a prisoner for serving the Lord. He said, And beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now, was this to specific people, or was this to the church in general? It was the church in general. He said, To live a life that is worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. And we need to believe and put in our spirit that God chose us to good works before the beginning of time. Alright? So, I'm doing what God called me to do. And so each one of us have to do what God calls us to do. Because we need to live the life worthy of the responsibility that He's given us. Amen. Verse 2 says, always be humble and gentle. Now, this is not in the form of correction. Paul's not speaking here in the form of correction. But what he's speaking of <laughs> is in the form of edification. Because he realized himself that we are not always humble as Christians. Can I get an amen there? Amen. And we are not always gentle as Christians. Can I get an amen there? <laughs> now Paul doesn't go on a rant against that. He realizes that that's who people are. And we're human beings and we're going to be like human beings sometimes. But we're not, we're not supposed to forget our calling. But as we exercise our calling... He says to the church, always be humble and gentle and be patient with each other. Well, we failed all three of them, so no. no. <laughs> but now, see, that's okay to read it out of this chapter because Paul's not in correction mode here. He's in lifting up mode. Amen. He's in edifying mode. We all know these things to be true. 
And we've all been guilty of not being humble at times, not being gentle at times, and certainly not being patient at times. But Paul exhorts the church at Ephesus, hey, it's okay, it's okay. I'm, he's reminding them. Okay, uh, where was I? Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Sometimes it's hard to make allowances, isn't it? We want everybody to be like us. Amen. But it says we need to be uh, make allowance for each other's fault. That's not condone sin, but we're motivated by love to make an allowance. You know, forgiveness. When we forgive one another, another. When we forgive, <laughs> Spanish. No, that sounds like German, another. No, but when we forgive one another, what we're doing is making allowance for each other's faults. Okay? Does God make allowance for our faults? Yes, He knows us and He makes allowances for us. Because why? Because He loves us. The only thing that causes us to forgive one another, there I go again. Somebody take my lip and, and wash it, please. I'm just going to keep on saying another, okay? <laughs> the only thing, see, God loves us. And so he makes allowances for our failures, our lack of humility, our lack of gentleness, our lack of patience. So since we get that from him, how should we forgive one another? By love. Love is what motivates forgiveness. Without loving somebody, there's no forgiveness. I one of my friends said to me the other day, uh, he's a great supporter of missions, and he gives a lot to missions work, and he said, uh, been kind of short here lately, haven't had a whole lot of money to give, and he said, I figured out something. I said, what's that? And he said, it costs money to love people. Amen. <laughs> and I thought, that's pretty profound. It does cost money to love people. And it costs us to love people too. Remember, the example of God's love on this side is the love of God, which is a positive thing. On this side is the mercy of God, which can be looked at as a negative thing because we all need the mercy of our sins covered. And what happens in our life, what he's talking about here, making allowances for each other's fault, we got to have love and we got to have mercy. And when they come together, there's an explosion and it's called yes. grace. Amen. And that's what we all need. We need grace with each other, okay? I'm not going to get very far tonight. Any questions so far? Anybody? Yes? I read something once in Corinthians, and I'm not sure how to say it. What's that? Well, I'm sorry, I can't hear. I read something in Corinthians, I believe, and I don't know the quite quotation on it, but it kind of dumbfounded me because it said, For whom we forgive much, God also forgives. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, it just goes back basically to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who we're indebted, you know. Forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us. If you if we're short or small or unloving in our forgiveness, you know, people can tell whether you're actually serious about forgiveness. I mean, they can tell. You know, people can just tell because they have the witness of the Spirit with them. And so if we forgive little, we're going to be forgiven little. Because the Bible says, And whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. 
So if we sow sparingly, we're going to reap sparingly. So that's basically what that means. If we, you know, if we forgive somebody much, God requires a great forgiveness of them back at us. Okay? Forgiveness isn't forgiveness unless both parties agree on it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can forgive somebody, but, you know, the true forgiveness is that we're going to get into the unity of the body in a minute. We'll, we'll speak about that in a minute. Yeah. You have something? I was just saying that goes along with the law of binding and loosing. Yeah. Binding and loosing, because when you don't forgive somebody, or they don't forgive you, then you're bound to that person. It's like a chain around your neck. Okay? I think one thing, you know, is that we have to completely, completely, that's the word, forgive. Completely. And a lot of times, when we have ought against our brother, we'll say that we're forgiven them. But we have to remember that that's how Jesus does us. He doesn't say, okay, I'm, I'm only going to forgive you for a little bit yeah. here, you know, but I'm still going to watch you because I don't trust you. <laughs> That's not how he does it. Yeah. He, when we ask him for his forgiveness, he completely forgives us and he throws it away, you know, but we as human beings, for some reason, we want to uh, hold on to it. We think we're justified in our... Um, ability to, you know, be angry at somebody and only say, okay, well, I really forgive you, but I really don't trust you. I really don't, uh, you know, <laughs> but well, that's not what God says. That's said. not what he does. And, and our salvation is not a conditional salvation. He doesn't just forgive us for 75% and, like nope. you said, hold 25% against us. That's not the way he operates. Okay. What was that? What, what are you talking about? The Israeli election last night. Oh, it went well. Yeah. So, so what we're saying here is uh, by his death on the cross and his blood being shed for us, he spoke unity, but then the church at Ephesus and the other churches, Paul wants them to make every effort to keep what he purchased. So what that means to me is, and, is that when we are out of accord with one another and, and just doing what we normally do, we're not humble, we're not gentle, we're not patient, we're not keeping what he purchased for us already. So he's entrusted us with these things that he purchased. The unity was bought in his body until we all come to the oneness of Christ. There's so much in this chapter, it'll take us a long time to get through it. But verse, four, verse 3 says, make every effort to keep yourselves united. Amen. Okay? In the spirit. And I found that's pretty much the only way to be united. And it says, bind yourselves together with peace. This is not a correction chapter. This is just a blessing chapter, okay? All right. Now, now we're going to get into seven points of unity that we can all agree on. And this is very important because we all come from different backgrounds. We come from maybe there's 30 people in this room tonight. We all don't think alike. Some of us, uh, we don't look at the Scripture the same way. But unity in the body does not depend on how we can nitpick Scriptures or get our favorite Scriptures and use the Scripture to beat somebody. Unity in the body, uh, these seven points that Paul mentions here, is things that we can agree on. See, what we need to do in churches is find the things that we can agree on and not focus so much on the things we can't agree on. Yes. 
okay? That's what God wants. That's what he purchased on the cross. Look for things that cause agreement. Um, Pastor Cleddy, one time, I was having just a miserable time. And I went to him and he said, Lonnie, don't ever trade your peace for somebody else's. And I said, well, i got to think about that one. because." But then it says here that we are bind ourselves together with peace. So we need to have peace one with another. Amen. So um, there's going to be seven things here. And if you'll read them with me in verse 4, we're going to look at both of them. These are things of agreement that everybody agrees on. Okay? And what's it say? It says there's one body. That's, sub, that's point number one that we can all agree on. Who, how do you interpret the one body? The body of Christ. And the believers, he purchased it with one body also. See, he purchased that. There's one body. And we need to look above some of the doctrinal differences and stuff like that and realize that there's a body of Christ. And who is the body of Christ? It is the blood-bought church. Yes, right. Those that have accepted Him. Right. Okay, there's one body. Everybody agree that there's one body. Because when we get to heaven, it's not going to be a debate about whether we like Numbers chapter 12, or we like this, or we like that, or, or whether um, we have doctrinal differences. I really doubt that when we stand before the Lord that He's going to give us a lesson on doctrine. I don't think there's going to be a doctrinal lesson. We are going to be such in awe of His presence and our unworthiness, and we're going to be waiting to hear Him say, well done, enter into the joys of the Lord. We're not going to say, you know what? I really didn't get that thing in Ephesians chapter 4. Could you explain it to me before I come in here? <laughs> That's not going to happen. So we all agree that there's one body, right? The body of Christ. The second thing is one spirit. There's one Spirit, and that is the Spirit of the living God which has been left here on this earth. In John chapter 16, I'll leave the Comforter with you, and He shall show you all things. So the Comforter is our guide until the day of the Lord. Jeremy taught on the day of the Lord. And, and uh, until He comes, the Spirit is the one. That we're trying to keep unity in the Spirit. We're trying to keep unity in one body. The belief, see, we make allowances for each other. By trying to keep not the church body of CLC or Eastgate or whatever, we make allowances for each other to keep the body together, the bigger corporate body, which is what the Lord wants. Because He realizes in these churches, if you go through the epistles, they had issues. Everybody there was arguing. You know, Paul was in an argument everywhere he went. Just imagine, Paul argued with everybody. You go back there and study it. But Paul didn't mean it. <laughs> no, <laughs> Paul had a disagreement with Peter, with Barnabas, with all those guys. They would mark the differences, but it didn't keep them from loving one another and making allowances from one another. Okay. One body. One spirit. We need to be in tune to the Holy Spirit so that we know what is the spirit of God and what is the spirit of Antichrist. Amen. There's one spirit. When you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's the same Holy Spirit that baptized them on the day of Pentecost. Everybody agree with that? God didn't fine-tune it or tweak it or put bigger wheels on it or anything else. That is the one Spirit that has been left here with the church to show the church what's going on. Point number three. 
just as you have been called, what are you called to? You're calling, but you're also called to the glorious hope. We all have a glorious hope. No matter what doctrine you believe in, what's our hope? What's our blessed hope? Anybody know? He's coming after us for one thing. We look for His glorious appearing. We have that glorious hope. How many of you believe that tonight? You know, I believe in heaven and I believe in hell also. There's a lot of denominations right now that don't believe that there's a hell. Yeah. And they don't teach hell. They teach that hell was Gehenna outside the, in the Hinnom Valley there because that's where they burned all the trash and sacrificed the babies and had, uh, had sacrifices to Molech. They literally interpret that as hell there. But I no, that place ain't big enough to hold everybody that's going to hell. So, well, yeah. I told you the story about... Um, when they first started the prayer room there in the amount of uh, in the hotel there, back in uh, 14 years ago, uh, the Hinnom Valley. And uh, if you've ever been to Gary Klein's apartment, you can look at over the Hinnom Valley and see uh, the Temple Mounts right there, Tower of David's right. Temple Mounts here, Tower of David's right there. Um, then between the mountain that Gary lived on and Mount Zion, there's this big. Uh, Valley, Valley of Hinnom. But it's not like we think of a valley. It's not a huge valley. I mean, it's no farther than, you know, a mile or so. And then there's another valley that goes around the south side of the Temple Mount. But when they first got over there and started the prayer room there with 24-hour prayer, which Gary works at and some of you have been to, um, they would take walks in the Hinnom Valley. It was a desolate place because people... It still carried the curse of Gehenna and stuff like that. And they would go down there and do prayer walks and just claim that valley back from being a valley of death. Nobody thought of this for all these years. And they started doing prayer walks and things down there. And lo and behold, before long, birds started coming back around. And now when you go over, there's grass growing and everything like that because there was a curse on that land because that's where God... That's where the, the people of Israel would take and burn things and it was a garbage dump, basically. But prayer and sacrifice and people reclaiming God's territory, it's turned into a lush green valley now. And it comes, yes, yeah, you've seen it. It's absolutely gorgeous. But then to the south of the city, they haven't taken that on yet. And it's, it's the valley of, uh, I forget what it is now, but Hinnom, Kidron, yeah. And, and it's desolate. It's desolate. There used to be a bridge over that valley that went to the eastern gate, and the bridge is no longer there, but that's going to break out in blooming too pretty soon. It's just all good stuff. So anyhow, we have the glorious hope that he's coming back. I believe that we have that. We can all agree on that, right? If he's not coming back for us, then we're basically just a bunch of good people that ain't going nowhere. There's good people that aren't Christians. Real good people. People that gave their lives for our country and stuff. They're not, they don't have to be a Christian to sacrifice your life. But we're talking about eternity here. We're not talking about the affairs of men. We're talking about eternity. And uh, that's a whole different ball game. 
we have to believe that he's coming back for his bride, for his church. Okay? All right, that's point three. Point one, we believe in one body. No matter what the church sign said. I was somewhere the other day and I saw the community church of this and the community church of that and the community church of this and the community church of that. And I thought that's all good, but we're very protective of our communities. <laughs> and if we're a community church, then God wants us to be a community church. What's community mean? To have things in common. To be common with the brothers. Community. So, okay. One body, one spirit. Don't be deceived by evil spirits. There's only one spirit. He always will identify himself as the spirit of God. Amen. He never leaves you guessing as to what spirit he is. Any questions about that one? If you feel like you're just absolutely being pushed over the edge of a cliff to do something, it's usually not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God and the wisdom of God, as it says in James, is peaceable and gentle. You'll know you have to do it, but there's a way that you'll have to do it. If the Holy Spirit's prompting you to do something, there's usually instruction with it. The devil will just push you off the edge and just leave you fly. That's what he does. Always remember that. How do I tell us the Spirit of God? Well, you'll, you'll see it. You'll, be, you'll see it. He'll identify himself from what he told you to do. Okay, point number four. Uh, you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. Okay, we believe in that hope for the future that he's coming back for me and you. Okay, verse five, point four. There is one Lord. There's not many lords, there's one Lord. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We all believe that in the unity of the body. See, this, really what this does, what Paul's trying to teach him here, is all these doctrines that are coming down the road that are trying to counterfeit the gospel, Paul needs to make this statement and explain to them, listen guys, he's the one. This is how you keep unity in the body. No matter what you disagree about, you believe that there's one body and you believe that there's one Lord. So if we believe that there's one Lord, that's over the problems. We might believe in different ways that he healed people. You know, Jesus didn't even have a formula for healing people. He used so many kind of different ways. He'd speak the word. He'd put mud in your eye. He'd put his fingers in your ears. He'd tell you to go take your offering to the, to the Pharisees and show them. And, and when they weren't healed until it happened, until they took it. And then all of a sudden, ah, I'm healed. He healed the blind. You think, well, and what we do in churches sometimes, we try to make a formula. I'm just as bad as anybody else. We try to institutionalize the Spirit of God and make it into, when we institutionalize things, then that means we can control it. But he won't be controlled. If he was controlled, he would say, okay, this is the formula, Dan. Anytime you pray for people, this is what you do. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and don't vary from it. But Jesus didn't do that himself. Because healing, and that's all about faith. We've all been given a measure of faith, and we have to match our faith with the faith that's around us. God has different administrations. Look at Naaman, for crying out loud. Poor Naaman, he was a man of great authority. And Elijah told him to do what? Go jump in the river. That's right. I like how you said that. Go jump in the river. 
the dirty Jordan. And those of you that know the Jordan know that it's always been kind of a dirty river. It's especially dirty now. When we were baptizing over there a couple years ago, there was things in the water that you just push them away. I mean, it's just that that's the truth of the matter. Don't repeat that. Yeah. But you just use your imagination. Because, um, well, I won't go into that anymore. But there's one Lord. Okay, we can all agree on that, right? One Lord. We might have different ways of looking at Him, but there's just one Lord. That's what keeps unity in the general body of Christ. Okay? What else is there? One faith. How are you saved? There's one faith. And who should that faith be in? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. Now, amen, that's faith. Say that again so everybody can hear it. Amen. That's going to come as one faith. That's what we believe in. Okay? Here comes number six, one baptism. We're all baptized into Christ. One baptism. Now, are you breaking any rules if you uh, go to the Jordan and get baptized a second time or anything? No. No. Because what matters is not whether you were baptized as a Catholic child or whether you wait till the age of, uh, um, you know, a lot of people think 12 is the age of accountability. All that stuff... You know, I was raised Catholic, so they dunked me before I was, when I was six days old. That's just the way it was. They baptized me then. But then I, I decided nothing against the way that they believed. But in the, in the Catholic doctrine, I was being baptized into the church, into that church family, and into the kingdom of God. There's something they, they do for continuity, uh, continuity sometimes, because they, if you, they do it when you're a baby, then they figure you're covered for your whole life. But then as you get to studying the Word and things like that, nothing against their doctrine, but I think the age of accountability is when you should be concerned about getting baptized. Because, um, well, that's a whole other argument there. But that's what I believe, and I believe the Scripture supports that. Not knocking their system, because they are, are very into what they do as long as they understand what they're being baptized for. And uh, when I was 13 in the Catholic Church, there's a, uh, how they cover that is they have confirmation. And so when you're 13, you pick a name that uh, is not your real name, and you have a patron saint. Well, now, you know, we have doctrinal differences over patron saints and saint this and saint that. But, you know, we can even overlook all of that if we try to keep the unity of the body. Because there's a lot of charismatic Catholics around nowadays. I mean, there's errors in the church. There's errors in this church. There's errors in every church. But um, when you're 13, you have an act of confirmation. That's their uh, age of accountability. And you take a name. I think my, my first name's Neil, so I wanted to be St. Cornelius. So I was confirmed under the name of St. Cornelius who's like my patron saint now, you know. How many of you know about St. Christopher? What's he the patron saint of? Safety and travel. They have, but 
what the important thing is is that there's one baptism. Now, that don't mean that you can't do it two times, but we need to understand the baptism and what it means. To us, it means burying your sin in a water grave and coming out a new person. Yes, Lee? Yeah. But, uh, but when you become a believer in Christ, and then that's the time I think Right. I think that's why they do the confirmation at age 13, to confirm you in the faith. You know, you were baptized as, as, a, as a baby. They follow the, uh, how many days was it before they took Jesus to the... Uh, Eight days, right? Seven or eight days. That was the Jewish law. And they would take them to the priests in that. So they kind of follow that. Again, I don't have a problem with that doctrine, but as long as we understand that there's one baptism. There's just one baptism. we got to know why we do the things that we do. That's the main point, okay? Any questions about that? Yes? I can hear you now, yeah. Yeah, chapter 16 tells you what the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It says he will teach you the future. He'll show you things to come. He'll be your comforter. In the one? Yeah, I think one spirit. That fits in one spirit. It, well, actually, that can fit in every place because if we believe that there's one body, it's the spirit teaching us that. And the glorious hope is the spirit. Spirit of God, we're in the dispensation of the Holy Spirit in the earth today. First dispensation was God speaking directly to man. Then the second, and some people don't believe in dispensationalism, but uh, hey, I said that right. I'm probably yeah, dispensation. But uh, we are under the dispensation of the Holy Spirit right now because Jesus is in the right hand of the Father. Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. What I was thinking about uh, for both um, when Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, who showed up? The Trinity showed up, didn't it? The, the Trinity was always in one place. And a lot of Trinitarians and people that don't believe in the Trinity. They'll try to argue the fact, excuse me. They will try to argue the fact that um, Rick, Rick's got a bail on that one. <laughs> well, I forgot what I was going to. Huh? Here, here's the deal. We believe that there's one baptism into the body of Christ. Now, if our Catholic brothers and sisters believe in that baptism, they're going to heaven just as much as I am. But we can't break God down into little pieces. 
because at the day of Jesus' baptism, the three in one were there. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Remember what Andrew preached? Uh, Andrew Murray, wasn't that amazing? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How many of you heard that message? It was absolutely incredible. I, I usually don't carry on about sermons, uh, but I text uh, uh, someone and said, it's one of the best messages I've ever heard about sonship and where we stand. That God looks at us the same way. That He is well pleased with us. And it doesn't depend on what we've done. It just depends on who He is. Which is right back into chapter 4 of Ephesians here. What He's done for us, this is what He wants to do, wants us to do for Him. Okay, there's one baptism. Everybody agree on that? Yes, Lee. Proof of salvation is a baptism in the Lord Jesus Christ. Family of God. That's the main thing. What are we talking about? What's this chapter talking about? Unity of the body. In other words, it's telling us, look over these other things that you might not agree with, but keep, it says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. So that's our responsibility. His responsibility has already been done. That was Calvary. Our responsibility is to make every effort to keep what he gave us. And how miserably we fail on that most of the time. But be encouraged. The Ephesian church did all right. Let's go on to the last point. We believe that there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God the Father. Amen? This is where the Trinity gets a little sticky sometimes. Some people don't believe in the Trinity. But it's firmly stated that there's three in one. If there wasn't three in one, why did they all show up at Jesus' baptism? Amen. He could have done it himself. And then people get into an argument of how you're supposed to baptize. Do you baptize only in the name of Jesus? Or do you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost? Well... I have a way that I baptize that I feel comfortable with, and that's what I use. It's not what I think. It's what the person getting baptized believes is going on. Amen. I mean, I, I don't have enough faith for everybody that I've baptized in my life. Think about that for a minute. People are not going to get very far on your faith. They get far on their faith. Okay. I think, you know, bringing all this together, the seven points, we have to go back and realize Paul, you know, in Ephesians chapter 2, he's about the one new man coming together. So he's teaching us the foundation, you know, because we're bringing Jews and Gentiles together. So he's teaching the Ephesian church, you know, the foundations that we can agree on together. So I think that's a good, you know, point to remember because, like you we have to realize that they worshiped idols, that they had all these other religions, you know. So we go back and realize that this was the early church that he was teaching the foundation of these seven points that we need to come together in unity and agree on. Yeah, yeah, that's something to keep in mind that she just brought up.
this was a new church. This was the new move of God that was taking place here. And all these other religions had been entrenched there for hundreds of years. So we can have doctrinal differences and apply this to us, but just think of the Ephesian church that, man, they were struggling for their life, you know, because of all these false gods. Remember the seven wonders of the world and uh, the ancient wonders of the world? They were all from that area pretty much because people will worship just about anything if they're left to their own devices. And that's, that's just who they are. So Paul needed to say, hey, look, this is what we, you need in the Ephesian body is to realize the things that we do agree on because here's another thing. The Gentiles were coming into the church and uh, the, the Jews and the Gentiles had always been at enmity with each other. And enmity, the definition of that is, is purposely countering something or purposely fighting about something. So there was no agreement. And that's what the one new man is all about. i got five more minutes. That's what the one new man is all about is bringing those into agreement because the Gentiles, you know, the Jews were holy people before. Their problem was not the law. They kept the law. They considered themselves holy. They made the sacrifices. Just think of all the bulls and goats and everything that was killed over the years. And then when Jesus came, he said, we don't need to do that anymore, boys. I'm the perfect sacrifice. I'm the spotless lamb. So he took care of all of it in his body. And this is what Paul is trying to teach by these seven points. The important thing is one body. If there's going to be a great revival in our land, as many people have predicted for years, it's going to cut across every denomination. It has to. It has to. If the Jews are going to be saved, then we're going to be saved because we're a part of that family. Let's read a little bit more. Uh, there's one God and Father who is over all and all and in all and living through all. So this is, this is the Trinity. This is the church that the Lord expects that we recognize one Father who's over everything. He's in everything and he's living through everything. So if he's over everything, that means he's over you, right? Yeah. Are you everything? I'm everything. I'm a something which makes me an everything, right? He's over everything. I'm not trying to be cute here, but if he's over everything, you're part of everything. Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy here, but you are. Oh, yeah. And he said, God the, he said, God the Father's over everything. He's over that. Okay? That's why the prophets would get on a rant back in the Old Testament about idols that, you, you know, couldn't hear or couldn't speak. Or that's where their God ended was right there. You remember the temple uh, when they put Dagon in the temple there? Well, Dagon him. And... Uh, <laughs>
down your second time, guess what happened the first time? Everything's going on the Okay, so he's over all. That means he's over all the kingdoms of the earth. He's over every religion, every way that people believe. He is over all of that. That's what Paul had to teach the Ephesian church, that he's greater than all these idols that you guys see everywhere you travel. Because they were real big into idols. That's why when you read the scripture sometimes and, and they say that the Gentiles could not eat meat that was offered to idols. Now to us, that's like, what do you mean? I can't eat hot dogs or, you know, what's this? And people get confused about all that. But back in that day, that meant something. If you took a sacrifice that was intended for one of the false gods and brought it into the house of God, that was a big deal. And to us, we don't know what the big deal is, but just imagine. They had idols on every turn. They would worship anything back then. And they would take them food. There's places in the world now where people go sit in graveyards all night on a certain day of the year and they bring food and stuff and banjo and play around and it's called the Day of the Dead. It's, it's very popular in Mexico. Yeah, it's the same thing. Okay. Um, okay, he's overall and he's in all. Okay. How many, hey, uh, we got nurses and doctors in here. How many uh, atoms do we have in the body, Lee, or somebody else? Atoms, yeah, how many? Just take a wild guess. Trillions? Well, what keeps all that together? How come we just don't? Yeah. But I don't mean to put you on a spot. Yeah, he made us that way. And he's in all. If he wasn't in us, that's why murder is such a bad sin. Because we're made of all these cells, and, and, and I'm not a real scientific type person, but God figured out a way to put all this matter together and make it into a living, breathing soul and a human being. And that's why murder is such a bad thing, because we're desecrating the temple of God. And we're exploding something that God meant to stay together until he called that conglomeration home, which is us. Yeah, that's getting worse.